Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Woohoo, gardening season is here. Today we're talking about agriculture and climate change. And stick around after the interview for a new uplifting segment we're calling Science for the Win with Cynthia Duraco. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might have heard me mention once or twice or maybe 50 times that I love green things, planting plants, growing food and flowers, and getting my hands dirty in the garden. There's at least one of us in most workplaces, right? Think of the person who you might bring your sad office plant to perk it up. That's me. As we record, it's late spring, and my radishes are popping up in my home garden a little early this year. In fact, I've noticed over time that here in New England, our growing season has shifted ever so slightly as spring and summer weather start just a bit earlier and extend a bit later. It can be hard to predict what will grow well in the hotter weather we've been seeing. Even a short stretch of really scorching hot days can kill off my less resilient plants. As someone who's attuned to the delicate balance of heat, light, soil, water, bugs, and chemicals, and also as a person who eats food, I'm worried about the way climate change will affect the way we produce food in our country. Moving far beyond the scope of my little garden, how will the changes ahead affect our massive system of farms and their crops, and the people who run these operations? My colleague, Dr. Marcia DeLong, is a senior scientist with our Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She spends her time researching ways for our agriculture and food system to work better for everyone involved. Increasingly, that means coming up with adaptive measures for farmers who are dealing with migrating pests, excess heat, drought, saltwater intrusion, and other effects of a changing climate. She joined me to talk about how the way we grow and process food is on a collision course with climate change, solutions for farms and farmers, how the lowly lentil can save your bottom line, and why it's not a good idea to say no thanks to nature. Marcia, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about climate change and farms. So how is climate change affecting farms and food production? Yeah, so there's actually two big ways that climate change is affecting farms and food systems. So one is these gradual changes that are just happening right in front of us every day, day after day, um, that are making slow but really impactful changes to farms. And the other one is the increased frequency of extreme events that we're seeing. So maybe I'll just start and talk about some of the gradual effects. Great. So one big thing that's happening is that growing seasons are shifting. Uh, Plants take cues from the environment, uh, and that means that as the climate is changing, some plants just aren't going to be comfortable growing where they used to grow. Uh, It's hot out there, and that heat is just one thing that makes it really hard for crops and also for animals and animal agriculture to survive. Uh, And things that make it really hard for crops and livestock to grow don't necessarily make it hard on pests to grow. So we're actually seeing a situation in which the things that we want to grow are having a harder time, but the things that we don't want to grow are having an even easier time. Another thing that's happening is that pollinators are totally out of sync with the cropping system. So we need pollinators in order to 
uh, have the fruits and vegetables that we want to have on our plates every day. Uh, and if they're starting to grow at different times and the pollinators that they need to survive are coming out at opposite times, um, then this can create a huge problem for our food supply. Is that already happening? It is already happening. All of these things are already happening and farmers are already facing the devastating challenge of having to deal with a changing climate. Growing seasons are shifting. Pollinators are out of sync with those growing seasons. Uh, also, water supplies are just gradually becoming depleted, and that would be one of the really important things that farmers would use to cope with the changing climate. They would want to be able to irrigate when temperatures are really high, um, but if water is also in decline, then, then that's obviously going to be a problem. For farms on the coast, sea level rise is part of the problem. Uh, sea level rise means that soils are actually being washed away from farms, uh, and Salt water intrudes from the coast into farms, and so now we have crops that are being blasted, not just with a lot of water, but with uh, a lot of seawater, which is salty, which means that the crops growing on those farms um, aren't going to be very happy. So, Marcia, I'm thinking of back in high school when in ecology class where you have you know, sort of the circle of life and everything is dependent on the next thing in the circle. And I'm imagining this circle for farmers where everything is just out of whack. Yeah, I, I think the problem for farmers is that sometimes one thing changes and they have a series of catastrophic events um, that really set them back for just the, the first year, but then also for years in the future. So for example, I mentioned that extreme events are a huge problem. So it's not just these gradual changes that are happening with climate, but it's the fact that we're seeing increased events of flooding and droughts and fires and so on. So for example, we have extreme rainfall. For farmers, that means that the soil that is the most precious resource that they have is washed off of their land at an alarming rate. And they really need that soil in order to have resilience for future extreme events and future years. When the water takes away the soil, it also takes away uh, anything that they've purchased and put on that land to help their crops grow. So all of the fertilizers that they've purchased or the pesticides to help them keep weeds in check, uh, that rain that's taking away their soil is also taking all of those materials away. That's an expense. And for farmers operating at the margins, that's a huge problem for their bottom line. Then this water with their soil and their fertilizers and their pesticides uh, makes, the, makes its way downstream. That impacts local water quality. And then it also goes way down the line, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, for example, for farmers in the Midwest, and causes huge problems with increasing dead zones. And that means fish kills and algal blooms that disrupts fisheries. So now you're impacting another piece of the food system. And just remember that way back in the beginning, when we were talking about the farmers losing their soils, now that farmer is going to be more vulnerable to that that. Uh, whole cycle being triggered next time around. So give me some examples of extreme weather events that have just happened. So we just saw this, for example, with flooding all the way from the Midwest, the recent bomb cyclones there with the flooding there that really truly devastated a lot of farmers and ranchers in that area. Uh, and also earlier in the flooding in Puerto Rico, where again, farmers were also in the mix of folks who are suffering from that extreme event. These kinds of events are going to continue to come. So whatever we can do 
to get farmers best prepared to be able to bounce back, we should do. So how do farmers or farms deal with the consequences of either one, the steady growing climate change or the extreme events? Yeah, I think there's a variety of different ways that farmers can deal with these things. And farmers are used to unpredictable circumstances and farmers are used to challenges with what they do. I think the issue here is how many more challenges can we ask farmers to deal with year after year after year? So when we're talking about farmers, what size farms? Are we talking about the gigantic farm or a medium-sized farm or a small farmer? What size farm are we talking about? The farms that we have across the United States today are more and more these very, very large commodity crop farms. So these are farms that are growing things like corn and soybeans and cotton and wheat. And we know that these are the kinds of crops that are going to be affected by climate change. So that just means that a huge percentage of the land that we have in farming, we know is going to be suffering from a lot of these effects. Now, there are also other farms, and they don't get a free pass either. In fact, in many cases, I think it's going to be much harder for smaller and medium-sized farms. So these are the kinds of farms that uh, are already feeling threatened just from other circumstances happening in the United States. So we have trade wars, and we have uh, increasing consolidation in farming, and all of these other pressures that have made it really hard to be a small or medium-sized farm in the United States. Those farms don't also always have the same kind of safety nets available from our federal policy or even from, from other support systems that they might hope to get some help with when disaster would strike. So you mentioned earlier that as the climate changes and a crop in one area, a farmer is no longer able to grow that crop. How easy is it for a farmer to switch and grow something that now will work in that warmer area? This is part of the problem that we're facing, is that we have a farming system today where Farmers have really invested in growing one thing really, really well and at a very large scale. And that means investing in the equipment to grow that, which can be very expensive, having a lot of land tied up in that one crop, having the training and knowledge to grow that crop. So these are farmers that if you then say, oh, just stop growing that thing that you've been growing forever and you have all of this investment and equipment and training to do, and we ask them to do something different, we have to realize that that's a really big ask. There are opportunities for farmers to be making changes to what they're doing and to build more resilience into their system, but it's not necessarily going to be easy, and we're going to need to be thinking about how we support farmers in making some of these changes and look ahead. So do you have any examples of farms that have, that have been able to be sort of more flexible? Fortunately, there's examples of this all across the country, but some of our favorite examples come from Iowa. Iowa is known as part of the Corn Belt. There's a lot of corn and soybeans grown in Iowa. Uh, and a question is, how can we start to pull some diversity back into this farming system and to do it in a way that can really help farmers prepare for climate change and grapple with some of those other challenges that, that we mentioned, so water pollution and erosion and so on. 
So researchers from Iowa State University have actually found out that you can take your corn and soybean field and you can actually add in a small grain like oats uh, or something like alfalfa into a rotation. So now instead of growing just two crops, corn one year and soy the next, maybe you have corn one year, soybean the next, and then oats and so on. It's actually amazing how much some of these little tweaks to farming systems can create a big improvement for for farmers, for soil health, for adapting to changes in, in climate. And that's just one example. Another great example is farmers in the same area in corn and soybeans have figured out that you can put prairie strips just in 10% of the field. And prairie used to be the dominant landscape within what, what Iowa. What are prairie strips? So prairie strips, so prairies think beautiful tall grasses uh, with very, very deep roots that support a lot of wildlife and pollinators. We were talking about pollinators. Something that doesn't look like the corn and soybeans, but also doesn't take up that much space and can really help to reduce the loss of fertilizers from those fields and water and soil loss from those fields while still keeping farmers in a really good place in terms of their bottom lines. The deep roots in that prairie strip made me think about deep roots and kind of holding the soil. Let's talk soil for a minute. Okay. What are some ways that um, farmers can protect their soil? Farmers can protect their soil by keeping it covered year-round. Just like you would put a blanket over something you want to protect, we want to be thinking about the ways to cover up soils and keep them safe from wind and from water and so on. So this is through things like cover cropping. That just means covering the soil during the time of year when that main crop that is bringing in the profits isn't growing, Uh, or just planting crops that cover the ground year-round. So that's a perennial crop. just means that that crop has cover above and below ground year-round. The other thing that soil can do is, again, it's those roots. It's those deep roots going into the ground. They hold the structure together, and they create a nice environment for the biology down there, too, because soils are a really rich, living environment when we manage them to be that way, and that's when they perform best. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to our interview. So what are some other examples of farmers making their farms more climate resilient? Another example comes from Montana, where they've had a lot of problems with drought. And one of the crops that's actually really, really good at thriving during drought is lentils. And lentils have have been really helpful for farmers in Montana because they are able to, to thrive in these really challenging conditions. They're also creative food that's very healthy and we like. Um, and they also uh, provide nitrogen. So they're also a crop that can help with reducing costs for farmers, one of those big costs, which is fertilizer. Did they just swap that in rather than planting something else that was struggling? Ah, great question. So again, this is about thinking of ways to tweak 
the system that exists. So people were growing a lot of wheat. There was still wheat growing, but now we were looking at mixing into, a, we call it a rotation, pulling lentils in. So for part of that rotation, you're growing lentils. The cool thing about farmers who were planting lentils and growing lentils during the drought in Montana is that they were actually much more successful farms during that time. So whereas other farms were clearly very parched and weren't able to survive very well during the drought, just by having some lentils on the field during some of the years, these farms were in a much more resilient place. They were able to survive through a really difficult time. So farmers are needing to be more creative and flexible, try to build in some flexibility as their own safety net. Farmers who are able to be more creative and think about ways to diversify their operation in really smart ways that help build their soil health and also keep their profits up, those are the farmers that I think are going to be in the best position to deal with these climate impacts that keep coming and coming every year. So it's great if a farmer can can build in this flexibility and build a different crop, but are there challenges when it comes to selling that crop? Absolutely. The farming system that we have today, which is really focused on just a handful of commodity crops, that's what farmers are used to. They know that if they grow corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, or so on, that they have a market there ready to go. And that's a really important thing as a farmer, especially if you're operating on a margin or you're, you're struggling from year to year. So if we want farmers to grow new crops, or if we want to be able to support farmers to grow the kinds of crops that science is showing more and more will really help farmers be more resilient to climate change, then we need to figure out what are the markets that we can create? What can the rest of us do to make sure that when they grow that crop that helps their farm and helps us, that they are able to make a profit from that crop? So how are the actual people working on the farms going to be affected with, by climate change? This is something we really need to be thinking about. As temperature levels are rising, it's not just crops that are going to be suffering. There are people actually working on these fields who are going to be really at risk thanks to these changes in temperature. So as people are out there on the fields and temperatures are rising, this means heat stress. This means heat exhaustion, heat stroke, heart attacks. We're talking about real consequences for real people who are out there working to get food that comes to our tables every day. So are there solutions? What types of strategies can a farmer use? This is the kind of thing where there needs to be a greater awareness of how severe the changes in climate are, how severe the conditions are, so that the people that are working out in the fields aren't out during the worst times. This is about making sure that we don't have people on the fields during the times when their health is most at risk. And this is why it's so critical that we don't just think about the short-term Band-Aid solutions, but we really work towards turning this problem around. How can we help communities and farmers make this shift and, and prepare for extreme weather and a changing climate? So the, the first thing that we can do to help farming communities deal with these increasing impacts from climate change is get the practices that we know work in their hands. So that means practices like cover cropping, no-till, 
crop rotations, planting perennials, and so on. So it's making sure that these farmers know about these tools, that we continue to improve these practices through research and development and experimentation to make sure that they're optimized for all of the different areas across the country that need them. And we need to make sure that the farmers who are using these practices are successful. So do they have the markets that they need? Do they have the safety nets that they need? Are they supported? So that's the first thing that we can do. The second thing that we can do to help farming communities is just think about how can we help the communities, the actual communities, because rural communities, farming communities for the last few decades have been really facing poverty, unemployment, depopulation. So these are communities that are already experiencing a lot of stress. When we think about the disasters that these farms are inevitably going to face, the short-term gradual changes that are making farming more and more difficult every year, and these extreme events that can come wipe out their productivity unexpectedly at any year, these are communities that we need to make sure have support to be able to bounce back from a disaster. So that can mean infrastructure for communication, transportation. It can mean just making sure that water supplies are available, just the basics. Can we make sure that these communities have the basic things they need to be able to cope with the disaster when it inevitably comes? And then the last thing, and perhaps this is obvious, but we have got to get a grip on stopping climate change. All of these other solutions will really help farmers adapt over the next few years. All of these solutions can help communities and farmers cope with the impacts that they're facing. But unless we turn climate change around, these are all just short-term solutions. So do, do the benefits of improving our farming practices extend beyond the farm? Thankfully, yes. This is one of the best things about the practices that we know work for helping build resilience to climate change. These are the same practices that we need farmers to be adopting for so many reasons. These are the same practices that we want to see farmers being able to adopt for their own benefit, to improve their own bottom line, to improve the productivity of their lands. These are the kinds of practices that will help with water quality. So improving the quality of drinking water downstream from farms nearby and far. How do we get a grip on the problems with dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico? It's through these same practices. So these are really win-win opportunities for us. It is a shift from the farming system that we have today. There's so much good that can come from it. So it's really in all of our best interest to try to figure out how do we make farms that are using these kind of practices thrive? And how do we invest in rural communities so that they're well-equipped to deal with the challenges that are coming their way no matter what? Well, Marcia, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Dear listeners, we recently surveyed you about your podcast needs and preferences, and many of you requested an occasional uplifting science story or news item. So today we're bringing you our new segment called Science for the Win. Welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia Duraco, to the mic. 
Thanks so much, Colleen. It's great to be here on this sunny June day. And what we're doing with that sunshine in the U.S. is a big part of today's science for the win. Here's the thing. Clean energy, like wind and solar, is gaining momentum across the country. More and more people and businesses are choosing renewable power. And on a policy level, more and more states, cities, and companies are setting 100% clean energy targets. Let's get into some numbers. First off, my colleagues who keep track of exciting renewable energy milestones are celebrating a big one we hit in early May. The U.S. has passed the 2 million mark on photovoltaic installations. That's science speak for solar panel systems. That means we have 2 million of these systems on the roofs of homes and businesses, in parking lots, beside highways, and in fields and deserts across America. And while there's still so much more room for growth, this 2 million installation milestone is worth getting excited about. That's because it took us 40 years to hit 1 million solar installations. But by the time we did that in 2016, it took us only three years to get to the next million. That's 40 years for the first million and only three for the next. That momentum is huge. And industry analysts project that solar will keep growing at this rate, which is great news for our country's ability to phase out burning fossil fuels and ramp up our reliance on clean energy. Now let's zoom out a bit. I've got some more numbers for you to get excited about. Four and two. Not quite six. Four and two. That's four states now that have passed legislation requiring that the state's electricity be generated with 100% clean sources. And the two not states of Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico that have made the same commitments. Now, Hawaii was the first state to set a 100% renewable energy target in 2015, requiring all Hawaiian electricity to be renewably sourced by 2045. California followed suit with a law in 2018 for 100% carbon-free electricity also by 2045. Then Washington, D.C. voted at the end of 2018 to pass an even more ambitious renewable energy target of 100% by 2032, along with a zero-emissions public transportation mandate by 2045. And in March and April of this year, New Mexico, Puerto Rico, and then Washington State passed their own versions of similar bills. These 100% clean energy laws are also something to get excited about especially since the earliest renewable energy target for most states, for many years, were far more conservative. States started with goals of 10% clean energy, or 15. And if you suggested powering your entire state with 100% clean energy even just 10 years ago, (laughs) folks might have thought you'd spent a little too long in the sun. So this is huge progress for all four states and both not-quite states. And they're showing the rest of the country that operating on carbon-free power is an achievable goal. We can thank science and scientists for the spread of renewable energy in the U.S. Climate scientists and those who listen to them have driven our country to keep transitioning to clean energy. And the scientific minds behind the engineering marvels of renewable energy like wind and solar, making these technologies more efficient and effective year after year, have led to its unstoppable growth. So when it comes to clean energy in the U.S., the outlook is pretty sunny. I'm Cynthia Duraco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. 
Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Marcia DeLong. Science for the Win by Cynthia DiRocco. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time. <laughs>